So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. It's a nice mild beer we have from Hellbent Brewing today. It's the ECS Twin Star Lager. What do you think, Michael? Very tasty. Should pair well with some documentaries that we're talking about today in Doc Talk Part 5. You want to tell the folks what documentaries we're talking about today? I absolutely do. We're digging into the 1929 classic Man with a Movie Camera which is a silent about one hour film, depending on which version you watch, um, of Soviet Russia depicted by a man with a movie camera. It's quite interesting. Taking it back. I'm looking forward to that. And then we've got Making Waves, the art of cinematic sound from our um, budding graduate class of the... I, I don't even know how to put them at this point, but the the men who are responsible for revitalizing and reinvigorating cinema in the 70s, I guess, between John Milius and George Lucas and Martin Scorsese. The movie brats. De Palma. And, yes, exactly. The movie mm-hmm. brats. And Coppola. You can't forget Coppola. And then we have Ex Libris, New York Public Library, the Frederick Weissman uh, three and a half hour documentary that is mosaic and tapestral and i am thrilled to talk about that at the end even if i'm talking over a cat murdering a scratching post in the background so runtime wise man with the movie camera and ex libris nicely offset each other yeah with um making waves nice and, and in the middle a very glossy very cinematic very american sleek it was honestly nice uh, to have something that was a little bit not that out there We have a little bit of everything today, but we will do first impressions as always first. That's right. Let's start with Vivos. All right, Michael, that was the trailer for Vivos, the 2020 documentary about, I believe, 40 school children who go missing um, in Mexico. I don't remember what year. What do you think about that quite brief but uh, disheartening trailer? Disheartening is a good word. It does look like it will be an emotional watch that is for sure um i'm not familiar with the particulars of the case by any means um very familiar with the name i Weiwei, but i can't say that i have seen any of his films or his art as far as i know i think he kind of does um different kinds of art if i remember correctly um but uh yeah i'm interested it does look like it'll be a, a tough sit though what about you i knew nothing about this beforehand still don't know much Never heard the name Ai Weiwei before. I'm interested in anything that is systemic um, murder or serial murder or 
anytime that institution or power level makes a bunch of people disappear, that's always something that's intrigued me um, in my little anti-authority leanings. Um, so I'm very interested to see this. It seems very human, very um, from the, the grassroots up presentation. It shows the emotions and the locality of that, which is something that I, I really prefer in these documentaries, um, in addition to investigative journalism, I, I like to see the story on the ground, how this affected something. So I'm, I'm very interested. And it's one of the, I don't know that I can say most anticipated because I don't really know of many documentaries I'm interested in this year, but it's certainly up there in things that I'm going to watch once it releases. Yeah. In terms of new releases, it does feel like, uh, documentaries are even like more sparse maybe um on the release calendar unless you include concert films and sports documentaries because then there's a lot sports docs are having a moment uh yeah i could imagine something like this having a, a hard time maybe uh if given a uh at home release i don't know that it's something yeah. people are gonna be quick to turn on but well, uh, i believe it was acquired by an independent like art company Mm. um something like sundance but a little bit more art centered so i think it will have the financial backing required from individual donors i don't know how Mm. successful it'll be in turning a profit though i mean hold out and give it to art house theaters at some point today's podcast is presented by podgo podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. On to State Funeral. We just watched the trailer for State Funeral by Sergei Loznitsa. What do you think? It looks very well crafted. Um, based on what I can tell, it's it's an uh, assembly or an edited piece of archival footage that's um, not particularly from just one filmmaker, but rather from multiple state events that were recorded and possible news crews or something at the time. Um, so I'm very interested in it. I don't know if, like the people of North Korea, they were forced to mourn, or if all the mourning we're seeing is genuine, which is something that I'd be interested to look into before I watch it. But it's definitely something um, in a very bleak year that I will seek out and watch documentary-wise. How about you? Yeah, that, that's a, a fair point about whether or not the mourning is genuine. I think the images, to me, are convincing. They do look genuinely uh in mourning but whether or not they 
in fact are or what people are and which people aren't, I think is, yeah, an interesting question. With the gulags um, in place, I believe, at this time. Yeah. Um, as I had mentioned to you beforehand, this was on my radar. I think it was film comment, number one film, number one undistributed film of last year. And that, yeah, I think the imagery is really striking. I think it was also really noted for its sound. Um, I, I, I don't really remember the particulars of that, but I do think the sound design was even more disgusted than some of the images themselves. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know, just the pomp and circumstance of this event, which I think lasted like days, is just kind of incredible. Yeah, I, I believe um, it lasted at least days. Yeah. There was enough here to... You know, create a Armando Yanucci film, out mm-hmm. of, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think it looks pretty striking. Definitely, we'll check this one out. And the illusion to sound is a is a nice forecast for a, a title from now with making waves. But before then, let's return back to Russia with Man with the Movie Camera. So I guess first things first, we definitely watched different versions from what I can tell of this film. How was your score? Was your score um, emblematic of a certain perspective or was it kind of middle of the road? Mine was middle of the road. It didn't necessarily make me think that it was definitely propaganda, but it also Mm. gave the illusion to propaganda. Oh, the version I watched, which was the one that was on movie, the score was quite triumphant and celebratory and yeah at the end but like what about the middle even in the middle i mean Uh, there are these it it does kind of undulate a bit i think there are maybe moments where it uh settles down a little bit for but for much of it it's it's quite kind of frenetic and quick and snappy and um very propaganda like to me that not the case for you well i think that the quick freneticness i don't always describe as like overt propaganda to me it's the triumphantness mm-hmm. of like the nazi germany uh, propaganda films and um some of the like statecraft films that i see from north korea nowadays and um later period uh russian propaganda um brief documentaries that are like all trumpet all triumph all the time mm-hmm. um you know in the vein of like the apocalypse now valkyries yeah (laughs) helicopter sequence yeah the this the one i watched definitely had moments that made you at least question it um yeah Yeah, and i think this is a documentary that's filled with questioning but i i did appreciate that it it didn't feel to me overtly like a triumphant piece of propaganda which i find 
I did not expect it to not be that. Um, I thought it would be like overt piece of propaganda and mm. um, it, it was less propaganda than I'd expected, I guess. And I had pretty low expectations or high expectations for what it was going to be. And yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are plenty of sequences that sort of celebrate work and people smiling bright as they're just, you know, doing their daily And the oiling work, but, of industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that all seems straightforward enough. But then there's also stuff that's just that just feels more about like daily, so, daily Soviet life. Uh, yeah. Whether it's like shooting Hitler. Or, uh, that too. I was just talking about like the beach scenes, but. Yeah. But I mean, were you not fascinated by the fact that they were shooting Hitler? And, like, this, I believe, was edited in 1929, if I'm not mistaken. So, he was that hated then in Russia to be the thing that we see Russians shoot that isn't, like, the disappearing bottle, right? Because there is that editing sequence where we assume they're shooting the glass bottles, Mm -hmm. I believe. But the only thing we see them shoot is Hitler, and Hitler hasn't Mm -hmm. even become chancellor yet. I'm trying to remember. I think they're, it's like a sh- little shooting range or something, right? Yeah. And there's just like a little uh, poster or something of Hitler, right? I believe it was like a Hitler poster on a piece of tin. Yeah, yeah, So you yeah, could hear yeah. it like ting. Yeah, yeah. Certainly one of the more overtly political aspects of it. Um, that, uh, yeah, certainly uh, suggest a viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea that he was that hated in 1929. I'm personally look that was very educational for me to see this and then you know at a later scene we see the what we now call a hitler mustache um being adorned by a russian citizen and you know no one's looking twice so it's it's just interesting to see outside of our current time how things used to work at that point in time Mm. especially with all the perspectives we've seen from hollywood about it yeah uh a movie having just this sheer number of images does make it like that much harder to talk about it in a way. Like, I don't know that I even remember that particular image oh, okay. of just like a, like a regular citizen. Yeah. There was, donning a, a, mustache there was a regular guy working in a factory mm. with a, a, you know, you can only call it the Hitler mustache now, unfortunately, or the Hitler stash, but it um, is. Yep. Yeah. It definitely <laughs> seemed like a popular fashion choice back then. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much anymore. Uh, definitely not so much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of a hard one to like break down in a way because it's so much of a just sensory experience in a lot of ways, even though it's rich with ideas. But for me, it was exciting first and foremost, just as kind of a work that's ecstatic about the possibilities of the medium. It just is like one second after the next is doing something inventive and new and um, just pushing the form to its limits. I mean, I just think that's just inherently as exciting as it can get. Um, was this a hard watch for you in any way or was it? I will say the back 15 minutes did mm. become exhaustive. Like that last five minutes of just the score with the quick cutting of the sports. I was like, okay, how much longer is this going to be? Not that I wasn't enjoying myself and like about halfway through the film, I was like, okay, this is a perfect film, which is something I also felt while watching Ex Libris. Um, Mm. I didn't come out 
giving five stars to either one. Um, but I, I'm very close on both. I will say, and like the only thing that's more ecstatic and joyous than this film is watching the filmmaker in mm-hmm. this film run around with his camera on his shoulder, making these shots or lining up the train shot and how mm-hmm. excitingly that was edited. Um, and watching the aperture adjust or the blind sequence uh, where the aperture is adjusting and he's blinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think this does a lot of formal. Um, experimentation that translates as it was meant to multiple um or it it translates to people from a different time that speak a different language and Mm -hmm. i found it very rich for that specific group of reasons yeah uh one of my favorite bits was watching i think it was a woman who's actually editing film strip um and you're seeing the stills that you know one second you're just looking at the still, the next second you're seeing that that still has kind of come to life with just seems like cinema in a nutshell, mm-hmm. motion pictures coming to life. Um, and there's lots of kind of self-reflexive touches here from stuff like that where you're watching her edit the film or watching people at the beginning file into the theater and then again at the end watching this movie. It does seem like it's not just about the cinematic form, but the process of making the movie and watching the movie. Um, but there's also like, there's, I, I don't know, maybe I'm totally off base, but I felt like there was a surreal element in um, a few portions. The most notable one to me is a close-up on the traffic sign that we later see being shifted by a constable or officer in the middle of the street. The first time we see that, it's literally hanging in midair. The only thing we see is a wire. It appears to look like a phone. Mm. And it looks like just a phone in empty space against a sky. And I would be lying if I said I didn't think about David Lynch while Mm. this beautiful score was playing and I was looking at what appeared to be a phone in the sky. And then it, it came back and evolved its purpose and was brought together with the separate train shot, which then becomes the trams that are in the city while people are walking. Like he brings everything together. And that sign, which appeared as a phone is like, it transcends into different meanings um, because it's directing people. It's directing cars. It's directing trains, trams. um, And yeah, it was just really inspirational and, in a way that I was very surprised by. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it's hard not to watch this movie and just think about, like, countless other movies that are using the techniques that this sort of broke ground with, whether, you know, it's, like, canted angles and those blinds that make me think of film noir or uh, the superimpositions and double exposures that make me think about, like, Picnic and Hate Rock or um, the, like... Towards the end, I think, it's where you see a building kind of folding in on itself. Mm-hmm. That, like, that just screams Nolan to me in Inception, although that's, like, the most cited reference, I think. Well, it's, um, it's a kaleidoscopic rotation inward on itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah that seems very uh, Nolan-esque to me. Um, but maybe it's more right to call some of what Nolan does Vertov-esque. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I guess that is how you would pronounce his last name. You want to take a stab at his first name? Ziga? I always assumed that the D was silent because how else do you say it? <laughs> I assume that the D and the C mean J, so it's cheetah. I don't know. Oh, interesting. I I might be totally off base there. That's just what my my hind brain tells me to say. <laughs> I just ignored one letter for myself. <laughs> Ziga Veritov. Um I guess did you 
did you come away from this feeling different than you went feeling different about it than you went into thinking you would feel about it or was it everything that you thought it would be when you started it it was much more thrilling than i thought it would be um i just i was not expecting that level of experimentation on a second to second basis and that undoubtedly sustained uh my my interest and engagement in it from start to finish um it was yeah way more thrilling than i expected it to be what about you way way it was totally different than i expected it to be until the end um which is i believe well i guess maybe it ends with the house's kaleidoscopic rotation and on each other but it's that sports sequence that really threw it off for me like, I would have been fine with two minutes of that, but I think we get into somewhere in the nine-minute range of just watching people do sports well, mm. and um, it did not feel experimental to me uh, other mm. than the camera angles, um, mm. which is something that throughout the film, I was stunned by the audacity and the freshness of these camera angles that I think that we would be calling a director that presents this stuff if they release nowadays an up and coming great auteur who's gonna revitalize cinematography from a director, um, I guess level. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I would also highlight the athletics as one of my favorite sequences. I think the technique I remember kind of being on display there was slow motion and kind of fast motion. Um, an upshot, right? It yeah. was a, it was like an ankle based height that the camera was doing an up angle from and then i think it would rotate and pan with the objects being thrown yeah and then they would like what was cool was when they would cut it and like someone would throw a spear and then it would be the goalie blocking the ball yeah but i thought it'd be way cooler if the goalie caught the spear in the chest you know what i mean that i i can understand that (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i i think i like the uh the urban scenes themselves the most like so many of the train shots are just kind of stunning especially when mm-hmm. you know it's the train's already rushing by the camera and it's like the camera has been like thrown back on its heels you know just by the force of the train some of those are, are great or the um, cinematography of the camera while it's affixed to the train oh yeah oh yeah great stuff um yeah and and just a lot of those superimpositions i just think like of all film effects that's just like one that i always find particularly magical to just see these two images um together at once and just the meaning that that kind of um allows for i always just find super exciting um i believe there's a group crowd scene where he does a diagonal layer cut edit where the crowd would is essentially magnified by like eight times because of the way that he's diagonally cut it. And up until that point, I think he's only done horizontal and square cuts with the superimposition of pieces of film. Mm. And that like, that was just awesome to see. Yeah. uh, I mean, I think the score does help a lot in passing the time. I do think it would be hard, um, harder at least to watch this um, if it were silent. And I yeah. think my understanding is that for a long time it did circulate and was viewed primarily in uh, silent form. Um, really? I assumed I this I was something that. that would, um, I mean, I have no basis for this, but just watching, I was like, oh, okay, Russia, like, 
put this on in their theaters with full symphonies mm-hmm. playing, you know, the most triumphant music. And the version of the music that I'm getting is clearly like a more refined edit from 2004. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess um, I was thinking more about like just how it's been studied over the years. Like in film school, I thought it's often shown in silent form, which mm-hmm. I was like, I can imagine people being introduced to old film and uh, the silent version maybe being not the way to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting thing, whereas because of the experimentation, I almost need a musical through line. But with like the Buster Keaton films, I actually didn't like having the music cues sometime. Mm. I, I wanted to just be enveloped in his title cards and his craft work and um, not have that influence of telling me how to feel from a musical perspective. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the the narrative there is is clear enough that that can, I think, hold your interest for quite a while. Um, whereas the music here does a lot for tone that would more be sort of like up for grabs yeah. if it were silent. Exactly. Um, I think one of the most interesting pieces of suspense film, I guess, that I saw was the introduction of a woman with her back to us. If I, We might have seen like her bangs first and like the top of her eyes. But there's this recurring woman who we never see the face of. And in the first, like, 15 minutes, that's really important to the film. And then it, like, loses mm. all of its juice. And, like, she doesn't matter because we've gone to other places. Got now. better things to do. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you were watching the film just waiting to see her face. Because you see her put on her um, her stockings. You see her clip them. You see her get out of bed. You see her adjust her shades. And you're just so enticed by meeting this woman on film um, in a very Hitchcockian way that that's all that you want and you're so filled with anticipation for it that the film roars by Mm. and then eventually that leaves but i thought that that was a that was another instance of early filmmaking that we later saw from grand auteurs being experimented with Mm. yeah yeah uh yeah it's interesting because for a movie with no narrative to still have suspense is definitely saying something. Yes. Well, the quick cuts of traffic really do a lot to build suspense. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's suspense in watching a guy lay down with his camera in front of a train. I think there's some suspense in that, right? Um, if there wasn't, <laughs> they certainly put it there by the way they edited it. Word, for sure. Um, yeah. Lots of little stuff. I like a shot of the camera lens itself focusing, then cutting to a flower that's sort of like out of focus as it oh, slowly comes into focus. Gorgeous. That was a, a grouping of wildflowers, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, it's like the example that sounds most cliche, like a beautiful shot of a flower. But like, this is the most beautiful shot of a flower you've ever seen. <laughs> because it's lots of flowers. And yeah, it really, yeah. yeah, it's, you can't put words to how beautiful that is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, I guess it's a foundational piece in both experimental film and documentary film. I, I feel like I intrinsically learned maybe the most, um, about the world from this documentary out of these three. I Mm. learned maybe the most I've ever learned from documentary groupings from this grouping, Mm. um, out of our previous four before this fifth one. Um, but this one particularly, I, th- I think I'm just going to passively have a greater understanding of 
1920s in general in the world, 1920s um, urban Russia, um, cameras in the 20s, presentation um, that, that was possible in the 20s, um, even in places that weren't, you know, with Chaplin or Keaton or um, Milius, you know, the, these mm-hmm. great places uh, or great auteurs of the time you could still experiment and do great works outside of these. Um, and that just really informs my understanding of film history and the world in a, in a really meaningful way. Yeah. As much as I love Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, you know, so much of that seems like grounded in vaudeville and theater. Um, and to see something that is so distinctly cinematic, I think it even says in the opening couple title cards, like this is an experiment in what cinema can do apart from theater, apart from literature. Um, so it's definitely of the three, the one that most just excites me about the medium and what it can do and all the possibilities. And I like, I feel like this is what I would want to show like filmmakers and be like, look at all the things you can do with a camera, like use that, like don't just make a, a you know, theater that's been filmed, you know, do something with the camera. I think that's great. Exactly. And also clearly work on your cardio. (laughs) Apparently you need endurance. That is true. You need to be able to run up a bridge. He's in good shape. What sound adds to picture is so exhilarating. It's really half the movie. Movies sight and sound. You only express it with sight and sound. The point is to convey an emotion. <laughs> Film sound is an illusionary art. Sound, in many ways, is more tied to imagination. Film sound work wasn't always like that, with dozens of sound editors editing thousands of tracks. But when it all started, movies were silent. On to Making Waves, the art of cinematic sound. Which is a 2020 doc, I think? I don't know. I know it premiered in 2019, but it is... Uh, released on VOD in 2020. Who knows if there's even a Blu-ray that you can buy of this yet. I I don't even know how we tell release dates at this point. It's just whatever IMDb generally says. Yeah, I saw multiple release dates for this one, so I'm not quite sure myself. Um, IMDb says 2019, so we lose. There we go. Uh, Easily the most straightforward doc of the three we're talking about today. Absolutely. History of Cinematic Sound, followed by kind of an overview of all the facets of the craft. How'd you like it? I liked it a lot. I learned an incredible amount. Um, It's definitely cookie cutter presented by the numbers. I couldn't tell if the Braveheart sequences with the um, sound editor of Braveheart were reenactments or not. And that kept throwing me out because I was like, why would you go back and reenact cutting Braveheart like this is of no use to anyone watching this just talk Mm. um so that was like my major complaint I don't remember Mm. I don't know if you remember like those specific sequences but we just keep going back in the last third of the film we just keep going back to this woman who had cut the audio for Braveheart 
and we see her sitting in front of the board moving buttons up and down with absolutely no purpose Hmm. just wasting time yeah i remember the braveheart clips i haven't seen braveheart in uh it's been too long since i've seen it to have any reaction to the clips themselves whether they were uh reenactments or not well the the clips of the film didn't mind the clips of her editing the film that's what i had a problem with right 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 yeah um but otherwise i i really enjoyed learning about how the star wars sounds were created um especially the the king kong um sequence where we learned that they um recorded lion and tiger roars and then played them backwards at half speed and i think two times for the lion half speed for the tiger for the the sound effects of king kong and the Mm. the t-rex um that was just so rich and then um learning the history of pixar and and digital animation sound editing um i i personally learned a lot and i'll be able to carry what i learned into understanding other films in the future and i think that'll pay dividends for me yeah um i would agree i do think it's pretty enlightening um i think i personally might have just preferred some like more out-of-the-box examples i think that's just kind of where i am at in my own like movie going and movie education is the history is what it is you can't tell a story of cinematic sound without talking about star wars probably but it's also like the you know most obvious example you could possibly think of so i don't know i'm always kind of interested in a doc that make that can make me say oh i never would have really thought about sound in this case um so star wars apocalypse now the godfather you probably just can't make this movie without those but i don't know that like i'm just that keen on at the moment, rehearing the story of the movie Brats in New Hollywood and that kind of thing. Um, oh, this showed me a brand new presentation of the movie Brats. Brand new presentation. I had no idea that they literally invented a new format of sound that is now the industry standard just to put Apocalypse Now out. Yeah, I'm there, and I'm not saying that I knew all this. There are many names that I was that wouldn't have meant anything to me um walter merch i think i knew that name but some of the other folks um especially the once we get into the digital um age mm-hmm. was all completely new um so uh i def- i definitely learned quite a bit but i guess i you know just knowing my sensibilities i am always interested in something that's willing to stray a little bit from the mainstream i don't think it i think it plays it pretty safe in its anecdotes I absolutely agree. I think where I feel different is that to me, this is like the final cap. Like you don't need to tell me anything else now. Like, I feel like I know everything I've heard about the star Wars, um, production design. I I know how you did creature design. I know how you made spaceships. Now I know how you did sound. I already seen the, the documentaries on the filmmaking process. I don't care about the actors process on, on these films. I feel like this is the final cap, I guess, on it, which mm. is why I don't mind. Now, if mm. they come back to the well and they try to make another movie Bratz documentary, that's where mm. I'm going to have an issue. But this is something where every time they'd show me something, I would go, oh, I had no idea that they literally invented a new format of sound or they finally introduced the stereo method of sound for this film. I didn't know those things. And... Mm-hmm. um. I, I think when you don't know something every time it's introduced, that's a good enough reason to make a documentary. I feel like they don't have anything left to do that with from these films, though. 
Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I think I like that section of the documentary more than the kind of like back half, back third, where it's sort of going through the craft itself. That feels a little bit more of just kind of like a primer. It's more about the breadth than the depth. You know, there's that infographic, I think, of all the different kind of um, elements of the craft. And it kind of walks through each of those. Um, I feel like if you I were to see this. Useful, in, it's like useful, but like in a oh, YouTube yeah. way. If you like saw this in a the theater, like you should get like that handout or like take a picture of it with your phone. Like I do think that's useful. Um, and th- there you go, you have it on paper. I literally good student it right and here. Made it. Very smart. Um, and then you can go kind of dive into those, you know, as your interest suits you. Um, I I honestly like I've watched a film already since I watched this that was not a documentary. And I just looked at it to remind myself of, like, the different things that I'm hearing in the sound mm. quotient. And that showed me, like, what was being adjusted when. And it was just, I, I found it useful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, in all my movie reading and kind of self-movie education, I've never really done any concerted look at sound itself. You know, ex- except for in Film 101, when, when you're doing, uh, you know, the how the five elements of film or whatever and you mm-hmm. do a week on sound um oh you got to do a week i got to do a project less than that there you go <laughs> um yeah i mean i think it is fair to say it's probably an underappreciated aspect of the craft so for that like just the fact that the documentary even exists is great mm-hmm. and i yeah value that yeah i mean i was introduced to film history in a in a fresh way you're normally introduced to film history with this is what won an oscar this is what pushed gender boundaries this is what pushed race boundaries um this is when uh cinemascope came into being this is the first time where i was like oh edison made the the movie camera to make sound movies mm. that was the whole purpose i had no idea that was the whole yeah, purpose. the order of things yeah. and, and then they had to abandon it until 1927 for wings apparently mm. which is they attached a uh metallic arm to the rotating film canister which would spin in accordance with the correct timing for the piece of vinyl that they were playing like this is just stuff that i had no concept of understanding about me neither. Lots to learn, no doubt. Um, it's maybe just application, you know. It's uh, the examples that anyone, would, I think, would probably think of when they think of sound, which is, which is why this is going to be very broadly appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I like, you know, something that shows me a film, makes a connection that I never really would have made and um, didn't do that quite as much as I was hoping. You know, it kind of gives that perfunctory nod to like David Lynch and Eraserhead. Doesn't really go down that rabbit hole. I don't, I, which I think is maybe a smart move for the movie's own good. Um, yeah. Also for my own queasiness. Like I yeah. just had watched um, Eraserhead. Yeah. And I did not want to go down the feeling of hearing that sound 
and looking at that baby again. I, just I was just going to say, you know, it, you're either the kind of person who wants to more to hear more about the lightsaber or the screeching baby. I want to hear more head. about the lightsaber <laughs> and watch him hit the high tension line. I do not want to look into the radiator with the pine needles and hear the squeal. Lady in the radiator? Yeah. I would love to hear more about the radiator. <laughs> I to each his own. I, I personally disagree. Mm. Um, yeah, I, this is um, a movie where, or documentary rather, where halfway through it, I was like, are you sure this wasn't produced by CNN? Like, it just has that cookie cutter, you know, this is how we were going to present it. It's not going to hurt anyone's feelings. Um, here you go. There's going to be one moment of mental health addressed without any real depth. Y- you know, it's um, it's a very shallow documentary, but the breadth of history that it covers um, taught me a lot of cursory knowledge that I'll now be able to go into deeper, more meaningful conversations about films, um, deeper films deeper documentaries and have a better understanding of where I am in film history because of this. And I, I do find that greatly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. And, and, and I think the arc it kind of traces is just interesting in the technological innovation towards surround sound and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like it made me think just about, you know, the, progression of the film form and and that just one crazy director can demand something and then it happens that is very cool uh no doubt but yeah the the instinct to want to be surrounded by a sound when you watch a movie just only suggests to me that you therefore might also want to be surrounded by image and if it's only just a matter of time before vr kind of catches up with that same sort of impulse um so, yeah, I don't know. It, it got me thinking about things. That, I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, you didn't <laughs> hate it. That's your yeah, point. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would agree that I did not hate it. Um, it. It's something that I would recommend to, I think, everyone, which is one of the unique things about it. Whereas Man with the Movie Camera, I would recommend to people that are very interested in film. But this is something that I would recommend to people that are very interested in entertainment in movies in television doesn't matter if you like movies do you like television okay do you like mono or do you like stereo oh you like Mm. stereo okay do do you like dolby 5.1 with your with your hulu tv show then you should watch this because you'll learn a lot about why you like that and the background to it um whereas you know most documentaries I, i don't think have that broad of appeal where even a film historian might learn something specific that they didn't know before maybe about edison's invention of the movie camera in conjunction with being able to record or how wings had that specific type of phonograph attachment for the film i think there's something in here for everyone to learn at least one thing by the end yeah i think unless you're in that very small group of people who think that movies were still better when they were silent, then maybe this is not for you. 
but otherwise, if, pretty if safe. If you're bet. one of those, then you should definitely watch this. <laughs> maybe it would change their mind. Yeah, this that has may, the best maybe sound. That is the target audience. Yeah. I don't know. I, uh, I also I really enjoyed learning how they made these sounds for R two D two. That was very enlightening to me. I had no idea that he was playing. Um, the piano while um, singing into it, which I I know was um, I think uh, an experimental form that bands started using in the '60s. So that was just really cool to see the transference of experimental music becoming you know this iconic piece of of cinema and you know helping invent the blockbuster. Yeah, that yeah that perfect example of the kind of example it gives that was very interesting to me just the actual use case a little less exciting for me personally what next you're gonna say you didn't like the superhero movie parts well you know i was lucky that it didn't even like get into that too heavily um ironically some of the black panther clips were actually some of the coolest clips so i appreciated that oh okay okay (laughs) yeah i i did find myself disappointed that they didn't Whenever I watch these movie brat documentaries, the thing that I dislike the most, and I I don't know if this is fair, is that they never show the continuing evolution of punk in cinema. Hmm. They just go, now we're the mainstream, look at what the mainstream does, isn't this cool, we beat capitalism, and now it does what we say. Hmm. Um, But they haven't, like, told it to do anything new in a really long time. I feel like James Hmm. Cameron's the last one that told him to do anything, and he's not considered part of the movie brat club mm. and i'd i'd rather have had it end with you know i waves came out after this film was made but it comes at night like i, I would have rather seen ari aster or eggers like I'd, I'd rather see them pontificate and support these these newer auteurs that are using sound in this new way right i mean talk about the the thrill and the stress of uncut gems brought Mm. on by the sound design you know that's standing on the shoulders of giants but also going punk with it and experimenting in in new ways that are exciting Mm. and that's what felt cnn films about it to me that's what felt like a bummer was that it didn't go into the cool new parts of cinema that this paved the way for yeah i mean i completely agree and for me it's not entirely about it being completely new, although I get that impulse, but like one like sentence that I, I always remember hearing Kelly Record say one time was she was responding to the the comment that her films are always such quiet films. And she said something like, boy, like I wish people understood how many hours I toiled and toiled trying to get the sound of the crickets right. And like, you know, that's, that's just a, a, a way of thinking about sound that I... I wouldn't have just instinct instinctively thought of um, is how quiet movies um, are what what sound what role sound plays in a really quiet movie. Mm. Um, these are the, the some of the noisiest movies you can find. Something like Black Panther, right? Um, I, I will say that I appreciated the brief aside into um, Ang Lee and him talking about the wind mm. in Brokeback Mountain, which is actually like, to me, one of the main characters of the film is not just sound design, but the wind itself and how hearing the wind on the trailer is stressful or hearing the wind on the tent at night is serene and and the extra emotionality that that brings. That was the only time that it really dug into that, what you're talking about, that 
specific quietness bringing a qualitative element to the film. Definitely. One of my favorite anecdotes, for sure. He also just seemed so humble. I mean, some of the joy here is just watching great directors talk. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was one who I particularly enjoyed because he seemed kind of like to shrug about it. But it's like obviously so great what he's doing with it. Yeah. That's fun. Ong's one of my favorite um director people that i'm i don't know much about him but every time i presented with more facts or more interviews he's just someone that radiates kindness and joy and um quietness and i like that yeah um i agree any other thoughts no i i mean i'm sure i have some but they're probably retreading territory or going down deep alleyways into asides that are more about you know so what do you think that means about hail caesar type questions um so just to save your life let's move on to ex libris i think that's a good idea good morning thanks for calling ask my pl how can i help I see you've got one book on hold called Working with Bereavement. Oh, the Gutenberg Bible is temporarily unavailable for viewing. A unicorn uh, is actually an imaginary animal. This collection opened in 1915. In the past 100 years, every single working artist in New York City probably used this collection. Andy Warhol stole lots of stuff from us. This is the world's largest circulating free picture file. This is a place that's meant to be used by people who make things. On to Ex Libris, starring no one with guest speakers lots of them that i didn't know the names of and also richard dawkins and ta-nehisi coates elvis costello there you go that's another patty one smith. that i know the name of was patty smith the writer who which one was patty smith she was shown in the same format as elvis costello um uh kind of gray hair uh, hair just past her shoulders and big dog, was she dog. talking about the nonfiction books? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. She was talking about her memoir. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Our second Wiseman doc, I think, we once discussed. My second Wiseman doc as well. Yeah, um, we talked about Monrovia, Indiana, back in the day when that was uh, released theatrically. But we're working backwards a little bit through Wiseman's filmography here to Ex Libris. What year did this come out? Uh, that is a wonderful question. It came out in the year 2017, according to IMDb, but who knows when it actually came out. Yeah, I actually thought it was a little further back than that. Um, I love this documentary. What about you? Yes, I'm very challenged by it. I don't love everything about it, but as a piece of cinema, I do think it is the type of thing that I would demand be preserved. Mm-hmm. which speaks volumes about its worth. I, I don't know that like is the correct word there, I guess mm. is my point. It's mm. historically important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think many of the things I like about it aren't even necessarily specific to this doc. They're just part of the Wiseman approach, which has to do with like the rhythm 
of the editing and the comprehensiveness and just that feeling that you're watching an institution uh, broken down into its individual parts and how that gives you such a rich sense of what the place is and all that it does and its place in its society um this is a particularly long one did you do this in one sitting or did you break it up i did break it up i had to go run some banking errands and i decided to also get a car wash so i watched about i'd say just over half of it and then I, I went on a quick run to go adjust some funds and then get the car washed. Brief drive. Came back in, sat down, finished it. I just needed to get up and stretch my legs a little bit. It is a doozy. Yeah. Uh, I, I also broke it up as well into, into two cities, which I think is important to say because it would be a long sit were you to see this in a theater. It's an extremely down. long sit, even breaking it up in certain portions. And in other portions, you know, 30 minutes goes by in the blink of an eye. For sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, even though I think that sounds like such a specific interest to the New York Public Library, I think it's um, universal in, in any ways. If you have any interest in libraries and their function, and I, I think this would appeal to many people in terms of the, the issues and the role of the New York Public Library in New York is not that different from how libraries function anywhere else. So I think it does have kind of a broad appeal in its in its content. Um, um, yeah, I might even disagree with you there and say it goes way further than libraries. Um, there's there's a, an editing, there's a layering feature to the way that he's edited this and a certain portion that I just can't shake. Um, it's uncanny and it, it feels sticky. I, I can't avoid it. I, I've only been 48 hours outside of it, but I can't stop thinking about the early story about the, um, the priest who was enslaved and was swore an oath of silence essentially and, and did not talk while he was on the slaver's boat for like 40 days or something. And then when he finally spoke, he talked about how astounded he was that he could not believe that he would um, be treated like this by by the kings. Mm. Um, and by the end of the picture, you're watching the religious equivalent, these priests who, instead of being priests, are librarians, who mm. are this order of knowledge, who are mm. bringing this order of knowledge to the people. And we're seeing all these different edits of the way that they're teaching these kids, these adults, um, these first generation immigrants, how to use computers to download something. And the way that they're going to the politicians to try to get the funding to continue doing their mission of sharing this knowledge with these people. And that the only way they can do it is to basically create spells, essentially, to convince the people that the politicians, the people that elect the politicians of a catchphrase to fund this thing. Like it is to me, it all ties together into that story of the man who was sold into slavery um, by the King. Like it feels like at mm. any moment this could be sold like that. And mm. it was so moving the way that he chose to edit it like that. I really can't shake that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't mean to reduce it in any way to, uh, in terms of its scope. I just think it's interesting how the titles of all of his documentaries suggest that they're esoteric in a way that mm. you're you shouldn't watch Monrovia unless you're interested in Monrovia or if you don't live in New York. Why would I watch a movie about the New York Public Library? Well, it's because it is about bigger things than that. Um, and it's about they're all examinations of systems. Yeah, they're institutions, they're places, they're really broad things that he, you know, looks at in terms of every nook and cranny. It feels like there's like not a stone left unturned. Um, and by the time you're through with this mammoth dock, whichever one it is, um, you feel like you just have this kind of richer understanding of what the place is and what it means to different kinds of people. Um, uh, yeah, and yeah, I would second everything you said, um, that it is just kind of a, a a prism through which to see, you know, what libraries mean to people as a place to um, uh, receive knowledge and share knowledge and do many other kinds of things. I think that's what's particularly illuminating here is that it's about the many different roles that the library plays in people's lives in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and that it has played. Yeah, and how so much of what it does is only as good as um, people can access it, and it's only as good as the truthfulness of the content within it. Um, you know, those are things that I think, you know, are not New York specific. Yeah, um, th there is, um, I, I think, a point. Th there's certainly an agenda that Frederick Wiseman at least had in his youth that I believe he still has in some way, though less overt. And I found it very interesting how he juxtaposed the majority white, very rich presentation with the public speaker. I don't remember who it was, but it was terribly boring and mm. awkward and just awful. And then we cut to that, um, that neighborhood library facility that is small and it's basically like a community center and there's so much liveliness and, communication there and the the juxtaposition of those two events i i think portrays a, a very interesting purpose of when you get to a certain level with the public library it's all fake it's all image it's all grandiosity for the sake of grandiosity so that the wealthy give the wealth but the real magic is happening on the lower income side where you know a, a 2,000 square foot library is paying off way more in imparting knowledge and facilitating communication and evolution and growth in a community. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, easy to be kind of like in awe of certain scenes where you're looking at some of the art they have on display and sort of just like the grandeur of like the main branch. I think it's called the Schwartzman building. I don't know if that's the main hub or, or what you would call it, but it does have a uh, lavishness to it um, that is kind of striking at first, but it's significantly less striking than when you're seeing uh, librarians at other branches working with immigrants to just try and like use Internet Explorer on a computer. And that's where you, you like, this is valuable to me. It's like in showing just the the value of of what libraries do that you just overlook that it's so easy to overlook um and you know that it's just important i think how he always looks through his 
camera at all of these little processes and moments with just a lot of humanity. There's very little judgment in any of the shots or um, editing, um, even though there are sort of ideas suggested. I think it's very, very humane in all the people it's looking at, whether it is the people at the top or the people at the bottom. I think it really sort of lets you um, sort of decide for yourself, I guess, what to think. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think that initially I, I wanted to push back and say I, that I disagreed about how he edits. I definitely agree about how he shoots. There's no judgment in his in his shots, which is really, really important. I feel like he has an agenda in his editing, but I don't know that it's as... I, I don't know that that's the, the best word to say. I think that he has an idea of the best way that humans can behave and that his editing reflects what he wants to see in the world. Um, I don't know that agenda is the fairest thing, but I, I definitely, through these two documentaries, have a very clear understanding of his personal politics and what rubs him the wrong way. Yeah, and um, I mean, t- t- to me, it's things like access to knowledge, inequality. I mean, yeah. Wasted it, resources can... <laughs> that are public. Um, yeah. Racism in public forum. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Most of the inequality here, I think, is presented along racial lines. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost exclusively, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, I, I would be curious to know what the, what detractors make of his agenda, because it, to me, you know, I guess this is personal. It just seems like a, a very human kind of agenda, I suppose. Um, yeah. But yeah. Well, that's that's where it gets tricky is when you start trying to play politics with humanity, right? Like from a human based perspective, I, I think that I'm always on the side that he's presenting because of the richness that we're finding out. You know, the um, gosh, there was that sequence that was so odd where we're learning about this woman who was this great poet who died and all her children died and she died early. And right after she died, her newborn infant died. Um, and it was the 1600s maybe, um, and, or maybe it was the 1700s and she'd written a poem and they had found these poems and it was just like an aside in a board meeting. And I would have never had any idea about that stuff, but this, Mm. this conversation's happening in a board meeting. It's so, it's so interesting. And it, that's just another one of those moments that made me create an allegory of the the hidden knowledge of the priests you know from Mm. the continent of africa with you know what's happening in the upper echelon of the library and even the lower echelon where you're seeing these librarians read out all the books in the wizard of oz or um you know talk about how you find out how a family member who's an immigrant came into america by doing this process the there's a little bit of magical realism to, I, I think, these basic librarian processes. Yeah, I think the scene where um, call center employees or they kind of feel like call center employees, that's mm-hmm. really not the right way, are talking to people about like unicorns yeah. and explaining that unicorns are real. But it's coming right after the scene where – is it Richard Dawkins at the mm-hmm. very beginning? Yeah. He's talking about um, – people with with religious beliefs as idiots and that kind of thing and um yeah i don't know it just felt like a he's a used sequence. the word ignorant sir 
not idiot. There were some harsh words. Maybe it wasn't idiot, but it, it was, um, they were harsh. They were harsh. Don't you think? Dawkins is known for being fairly harsh. The ending is that he says that he thinks that the majority, mm. over 90% of people are ignorant. And he uses the other terms for, you know, a lot lower portion of the populace. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I personally um, like Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens and all those guys. So that's my bias. Yeah, it just felt like purposeful sequencing for that to be followed with um, people calling in about their belief in unicorns and like just the kindness and kind of respect with which the call center employee oh, responded that was to about? that. I didn't realize that. I thought they were just asking about unicorns and then he said, no, they're not real. And then the person asked, you know, the corresponding question, which led him to find the 1400s document written by a monk where I think the loose translation was that a man is a wolf on the outside but inside himself, mm. he is a unicorn, which I thought was like mm, very yeah. enlightening of a thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting thought. I, my yeah, the connection I was making was about belief mm. um, and his his comments about uh, the ignorance of of certain kinds of belief juxtaposed against just the kindness with which this guy responded to a mistaken belief. Um, it just struck me as interesting. So yeah, I mean. Yeah, I would agree that the the camera is not judgment non judgmental, and that there are ideas in the editing, um, but there aren't aren't too many that I personally would complain about. Yeah, and then there's other things where it's just like me learning, um, specifically the sign language sequence where mm. someone reads the um, Declaration of Independence, um, or maybe it was the Bill of Rights. I don't remember now. One of them reads it um, angry, and one of it, one of them reads it more passively and pleadingly. Um, and then we're watching the delivery and how she's angry and moving fast, and then moving slower and more placid. Mm-hmm. Um, I just learned a lot about how sign language communication works in an entertainment level. Yeah, that's one of my favorite shots. Is because right at the beginning of that moment where she's actually acting it out like the girl who's gonna read the next section when she shifts gears mm-hmm. is kind of off to the left and her face just like lights up when she's watching this woman uh just do her job demonstrate um you know th- th- there's lots of like big themes to de- to unpack here but there's also just about like lots of little moments of humanity that are really fun to to witness yeah enjoying the low the locality of stuff. I I think that's one of the things this does best is show you how at at the local level, there's all this beauty and um, worth that this library is bringing. And I feel like every time we go up a tier from that local interpersonal level, there starts to get some squirrely issues. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the moments where we're watching, um, you know, the preppers for the dining hall get berated by, the head mm. for leaving their coats on a chair while they're setting everything mm. up. Um, you, you know, that just bespeaks like the administrative issues in systems of this size. Yeah. A little sense of superiority there maybe. Yeah. Or just, you know, once you, once you get to certain tiers of power in institutions, I think things just naturally get squirrely. Yeah. Um, one anecdote I loved, I'm sure we could spend just all day doing this, but why not? I'll throw out a couple. 
I've got all that. (laughs) (laughs) It's where it's at one of the smaller branches and a small group of teachers and I think librarians are talking about just what's moving through circulation at, at higher rates and they're talking about math books being checked out by adults. Oh, um, that was a board meeting. Was it a board meeting? Yeah. It just looked like some of those were um, folks who were on the ground and they were talking about math books being checked out by adults. The implication being that they're trying to learn whatever it is they're supposed to be like helping their kids with yes. homework wise. Um which uh, is is just kind of a funny moment because they take it very seriously, but they're also able to kind of laugh about it, which just seems like another one of those very human moments. Um, yeah, I, I, like I think the line right there is, yeah, because when we went to school, when all these parents went to school, it was top to bottom. Now it's left to yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. I was like, shit, mm. math's left to right now? That's weird. Yeah. Yeah, that was... A good one. I also liked one where we see like a small group of artists. It looks like they're in a like art class or something like that. And they're learning about the archive of physical images that the library has in this like, you know, gargantuan folder system. And the librarians talking about how it's broken down by like type of image, like not just dogs, but dogs in action, Mm -hmm. dogs not in action and that kind of thing. And there's just, it's just kind of exemplary of his enthusiasm for this job, the archival of images of dogs into different kinds of activities. And that's just kind of astonishing, you know, that this institution has that if you need that. And this guy is going to be so psyched to help you find whatever image it is, it is you want, um, you know, Again, I could go on and on, but just another one of those moments that's just sort of speaks to the value of, inst- of this institution. Yeah. And all I, its nooks and crannies. I think you're less pessimistic than me. Mm. I think he knew he was on camera. You think so? I think so. Could be. That seemed very genuine to me, but that's fair. He seemed genuine, but I, I always take a pessimist's view of the the operant observer effect you know the fact that there's a camera means you're going to behave differently and put your best foot forward or your worst foot forward whatever the case may be um i don't know i can't imagine bringing that hustle and gumption and positivity every single day to that job if he Mm. does that's fantastic but my pessimist Mm. view as someone who would not do that at their job Mm. is i doubt it convinced me i think he genuinely wanted to help I believe that he wanted to help. I'll, I'll leave leave it at that. Any other scenes, anecdotes that particularly stood out to you? Um, yeah, but it's so broad and challenging. I I do find it interesting that they don't have um a sense of the value of buying books for different neighborhoods. That's never something that's really spoken about. It's always mm. spoken about broadly in demograph, but I, I know that libraries in my particular city here in um, what's called Lake city or, you know, North city, Seattle, um, you know, what, what we have at that library right there is a lot more multinational in languages mm. than the library that I frequent more often, which is next to my gym in Lake Forest Park. 
mm. um, which is smaller but has more English word books that are a little bit more about um, like current sociological stuff that I'm interested in, contemporary philosopher works, that type of stuff. Mm. Um, and I, I found it very interesting that they never, in these board meetings, addressed the specifics of like what certain branches need when they were talking mm. about how to divvy up funds for the city between ebooks and and hard print and softback and genres that they never talked about. Well, this borough, you know, goes through a lot of these and this borough goes through a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting role that the higher ups can play in sort of distributing knowledge throughout the city. If you are able to, you know, get a peek back behind the curtain in terms or of what they see as important my metaphor the high priests not the high librarians there you go there you go um yeah not not too much um talk about that from what i can recall which is i think there are like 90 some branches mm-hmm. um to the whole system there which is just crazy um that does seem like it would be a difficult task to decide um how exactly to distribute resources um yeah yeah it's um it's a documentary that i don't really have uh, a favorite part of i just have a favorite takeaway which is that that juxtaposition of the evolution of the documentary and the head documentarians that are or not documentarians, librarians that are at like the top of the board that are making these budgetary decisions and figuring out what the political message is going to be for the mayor to be able to campaign on in conjunction with that presentation about what it was like to be sold into slavery for a, a West African priest by the king that you had been working with. Mm. Um, because in the subtext of the film the entire time when you're talking about the library, the funding can just disappear and and it can end in an instant. And there's something very similar about those ideas to me. Yeah. 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 I think for me, the broad thematic takeaways were about just the importance of access and how it's only as useful as the means of access are, there um and about yeah um and uh you know i think the the ending note about the uh you know mcgraw textbook example um just again about the library only being as useful as the books are truthful Mm -hmm. um, and the resources are truthful um another important takeaway (laughs) yeah that that particularly was um I, I almost feel like it doesn't fit with the documentary before it. Like it basically mm, kind thro- of a bombshell. Yeah, like it, the it end. throws a gut punch <laughs> and then it kind of ends mm. with the, you know, they never dig into the role of publishers outside mm. of the ebook um, stuff that they're negotiating. Like that's never something that was addressed. Um, and maybe that is, you know, a, a true to what he was able to film over the period of time he was there and that the publishers don't get feedback from the libraries. Mm. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, Maybe there's bad stuff that happens from publishers, but maybe it is good that publishers are separate from libraries. I I don't know. Mm. That's something that I'll think about now that you introduced it. Three and a half hour doc and could have done more. 
Yep, I've got more to think about now than I did before. Is that a good thing? I think that's a good episode. I think so. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.